Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. I'm here with two wonderful guests tonight, dressed handsome and beautiful. We have Destiny, and we have Jonah. Destiny is 10 years old. She is from Provo. No, No, she's from Lehigh. And do you know where that name came from, Lehigh? Nope. Okay. And then we have Jonah here. Do you know where your name came from? Um, the Bible. The Bible. Excellent job. Is there anything you'd like to say to the audience, Destiny? Nope. She knows what she wants in life. And Jonah, is there anything you'd like to say to the audience? Yes. What would that be? I love my family. Awesome. Round of applause for Destiny and Jonah. You guys can kind of step over that way. Watch your step. Don't trip over the bottles and cans. And if you want to watch Heart of the Matter uh, from anywhere in the world streaming video, hotm.tv, you can do it. You can also watch our archive programs. They're uh, all there at hotm.tv. I was a born-again Mormon, and if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. And girl, a video that uh, the ministry has produced, Boys coming up, all available at hotm.tv as well. So get one, get them all. Sundays from 1 to 2 p.m. Tune in to uh, AM 820 The Truth. You can hear replays on the radio, AM 820 The Truth of Heart of the Matter. It's also a great radio station to listen to during the week. They have very good programming. From 2.30 to 3.30 up at the University of Utah, we hold a never-denominational Bible study, which everybody's welcome to. And then from 3.30 to 4.30, Join our Coming Out of Mormonism group called You Are Not Alone. It's right there at the University of Utah for more information. Go to calvarycampus.com. If you're coming out of Mormonism and would like to talk with someone who has done the same, who lives in your area, email us at sean at aletheamedia.com and we will put you in contact with one of our representatives who lives in the area. If you are a representative or if you've petition to be a representative, please be patient with us as we try to organize and get the system completely off the ground and in place. So we are aware of things. We're getting it going. You're, every week we add more and it just uh, with our staff, it just takes some time. Last week we had a caller ask if he could share his testimony, uh, which uh, was a challenge to me. And so I challenged him, what is a testimony? And uh, so I've been thinking about what, on what is a testimony that the LDS talk about? I want to share with you my testimony. On what are these testimonies built? 
Um, when a Mormon says, I know that the church is true, I know Joseph Smith was a prophet, I know the Book of Mormon is true, th this is their testimony, how did they come to these conclusions? And from whence did this knowledge come? So since we had that call last week, you know, it just kind of mulls around in my head. And uh, imagine that you're at an airport in some place and you have to choose between taking two planes over the, overseas to get to a destination. All right, and outwardly, the planes are absolutely identical, and each of them come with a, a smiling, shining, bright crew, a pilot who's capable, um, flight attendants, a crew, and each plane is represented by these crews, and they're all telling you, hey, come and get on our plane, get on our plane. Now, one of the planes is wholly reliable, safe, able to deliver you to your destination, uh, God and weather permitting, but the other aircraft is wholly unreliable, terribly unsafe, and will fail before you reach your destination. Okay, your job is to determine which of those two planes you are going to get on. Essentially, your job is to develop a testimony of each of those planes, okay? So, do you listen to the representatives of the aircraft who are dressed so nice and say, hey, you know, our planes are reliable, or, I would suggest there are three factors in this analogy that you are going to include in your analysis of the planes. There are the facts, there is your faith, and there are your feelings. You look at both planes and you determine the facts, you determine the faith you have, and you determine the feelings that you're having towards those things. Should a person rely on how they feel about each plane? Uh, place their faith that God will deliver them based on these feelings, or, or, or is there another more reliable way, a way that God has given all of us to know truth? Would the best way to determine which plane is safe by, is the best way to first examine all available facts, as many facts as you can find out about each plane? I mean, wouldn't it be wise to look at the history of the parts of the engine and the parts of the plane, the materials that these planes were made out of, who fabricated and manufactured those parts, who put them together and assembled them. Then look at the history of the, of the planes and look at their flight patterns and what they have endured and what they've gone through. Wouldn't it be wise to go about it that way? Wouldn't you look at each uh, plane closely at all the facts possible before you made your decision? Of course you would. And once all the facts were examined, we would then put our faith in our choice and say, I've examined the facts. God, please don't let weather bring this plane I've examined down. And then you would trust your feelings after you examine the facts and put your faith in it. Um, you would say, God, I did my part, right? And then once you took off, your feelings would be, a, a wise person would do it this way. Choosing, whether they were choosing between planes or choosing between medical doctors to operate on them or between uh, several homes that they're considering buying, uh, the facts of the situation should come before any choice they make. But when it comes to eternal salvation, the LDS say something differently. They say it's, it's like, it would be like the guy going and, and looking at the two planes and saying, I do not want to know any facts do not tell me about the history. Don't tell me anything. I just want to look at the planes and believe and feel that they're good. I want to base all my decisions on how I feel just by looking at them. 
and looking at the bright, happy crew and seeing which one appeals to me more. That way I know which plane is safe and which one will deliver me to my destination. Ignoring the facts of the matter only serves to get a person, or at least many people, on a sinking ship uh, or plane or religion. Do your research, my friends. It will make all the difference in your life now and in your eternal life later. When you do this, uh, a show like this, we've been doing it for quite a while now, you got to take some heat. And uh, when we started out, um, I was weighing probably in about 340 when we started in the show. And we got a lot of comments about my weight from LDS uh, people who couldn't stand me. And so they would say things about my weight. So I decided, well, I'm going to show them that I can get my weight down. And I went on this uh, ex extensive weight loss program, which includes just working out at least two hours, seven days a week, um, and eating maybe 1,000, 1,100 calories max, except for one day of the week, I would let myself go. About uh, less than a year ago, I developed a severe breathing issue, and I wasn't able to work out anymore, but you know what, that's okay, because since that time in the growth period, I don't need to prove to you anymore. Really what you see is the real me. I got a dad who's 80 years old, and he's 375 pounds. I have an aunt genetically who was 500 pounds. You can say it's due to uh, their things, but we have a lot of DNA going on in this too. Now, the reason I bring all this up to you is because we received a, a, a postcard. Derek, can you focus in on that? The postcard says, it doesn't give us a person who says it, too white. Can you do it? All right. What the postcard says is about Sean, morbid obesity detracts from the message. Won't somebody help him? I'm so concerned, love a true friend. I want you to know that this is the very thing that we fight against that permeates a society that thinks appearances are what it's all about. We are saying that people with different DNA, different genetics, different propensities, different sin bases, all those things, we are saying, look at Christ wants you. He is calling to you, no matter what you look like, you see. And, and people are forgetting that, and they're starting to say it's how you look that matters, you know. And they've been saying it in this state for a long, long time. I want that to be known before we go and look at this spot. Check it out, because through this, uh, your support, we're able to stay on the air.
And with that, let's have a prayer. God in heaven, we need you, I need you. And uh, we just pray that you will uh, send your spirit mightily into our audiences, wherever they may be, and especially into the hearts of those who are seeking and want to know truth. Open their eyes, open their ears, soften their heart, so that you can come in and heal them, and they can know you personally and intimately. Lord, we pray for this now. We pray for our volunteers and technicians in the show. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I made a mistake. In fact, it was more than a mistake. I was flat out wrong. Uh, I made the blanket statement that there have never been any metal plates discovered anywhere. Uh, what I should have said is there have never been any plates discovered anywhere like those Joseph Smith described. Uh, what led me to say what I did? Uh, unbridled exuberance. Uh, you see, after examining and finding so many deceptions in Mormonism over the years, it's easy to get excited and to say something that is not based in fact. And uh, I really have to be careful with that, and I made that statement in, the mo in a moment of passion. Metal has been used and written upon by different cultures historically, sometimes on metal scrolls, sometimes even in what appeared to be small books. They found some small books about the size of a credit card in Jordan that they're trying to see if they're fraudulent or not. There's uh, an example of some plates. So, but no, the size and description and number of plates claimed by Joseph Smith have never been found, but plates have been used. And I apologize for my ignorant exuberance in wanting to make a point where there was no point to be made. I'm sorry because as we said earlier, knowing facts is vital to knowing truth and to possessing good faith. Okay, tonight we begin examining all the necessary elements that went into Joseph Smith's cultivation of the Book of Mormon or what we're calling the Book of Mormonian. Uh, like we said a few weeks back, there are a number of elements necessary to grow an onion, and there were a lot of elements that contributed to Joseph Smith's cultivation of the Book of Mormonian. We're going to look at a couple here on the screen right now. You can see we've made a poster, and here we have some elements. Uh, first, we're starting with the ground, early American setting, then we'll talk about the seed and everything else. But today, tonight, we are going to talk about the ground of... Uh, of the planning of the Book of Mormonian, okay? Imagine for a minute that you're looking at Joseph Smith as an infant or a toddler in a giant white vacuous space. There's no ground, there's no ceiling, there's no sides, endless white space, okay? Tonight we're gonna fill in that giant white space by putting ground under this toddler's feet. And we're going to call this ground the early American setting and culture in, with, in which Joseph Smith experienced his early years. In 1776, our founding fathers, primarily Thomas Jefferson, wrote up a series of pronouncements claiming independence from British rule. They called it the Declaration of Independence. Just 30 years later, Joseph Smith Jr. was born. Written right into the document, uh, are telling sentences of what our found, founding fathers resented in British rule and feared would pop up in this nation uh, that they were trying to establish. 
Looking carefully at these phrases, we will see they played into the construction of both the Book of Mormon and ultimately the death of Joseph Smith due to his activities in Nauvoo, Illinois. The first sentence of the Declaration says, The Declaration of Independence lists our reasons for rebelling against the British. And it goes on. The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over the United States. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. So that's the introduction to the uh, Declaration of Independence. You notice the word tyranny there. That is a word that is going to be repeated by Thomas Jefferson and the writers of the Declaration because they were very afraid of tyranny. We're going to show you some highlights from the Declaration. I think we've got those, do we? That would be a no. Okay, so the Declaration continues to go. He, speaking of the king, has refused to assent to laws the most welcome and necessary for the public good. This was a charge against him. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right in representation in legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. Again, a mention of tyrants. Again, he says, and he has made judges dependent on his will alone. He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. This was a charge against King George. He has sent standing armies to be around. Now you bring a new country and you bring standing armies around, that terrified the writers of the Declaration. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. So we had a military base that was, that was threatening the nation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, imposing large armies again with tyranny. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare. And the Declaration of Independence ends with, He is a prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be ruler of a free people. Okay? As stated, about 30 years after the Declaration of Independence was accepted, Joseph Smith was born, and the themes in early American political, economic, and sociability hung heavy in the air above his formative boyhood years. It's not by chance that these very themes pulsing through early American history, themes related to tyranny, Savages, warfare, freedom, liberty, and agrarian attitudes are woven throughout the Book of Mormonian as well. Now, many political historians believe Aristotle to be the founder of Republican thought. Machiavelli, James Harrison, and other thinkers of the English Revolution took Aristotle's thoughts and molded them into a more appropriate working model. By the time the American revolutionaries came about, they took Aristotle's Republican ideals and applied them. And they came to see that there was a struggle, a political struggle, a war between forces of virtue and forces of corruption. All right? And these were black and white, good and evil, threats to the union or supports for the union. Early American political theorists believed that a republic was the best form of government, 
but they knew it was a very fragile system and a system that was difficult to keep healthy. Where kingships and monarchies could be extremely evil, as evidenced by the actions of King George, from whom they sought political emancipation, excuse me, political thinkers like Jefferson believed that there were some essential methods, attitudes, and certain things that they could do to warrant off evil and to get the unruly masses under control. Because of our forefathers' God-given insights, after the American Revolution, which ended in 1776, a tenuous and possibly at times frightening newcomer entered uh, into the scene, and it was a new republic here on the verdant shores of America. Now listen very closely. It quickly became apparent that the greatest enemies to this new republic, which was going to be very different from a monarchy, would be anarchy and tyranny. Remember those two words. They were terrified, the founding fathers, terrified of both anarchy and tyranny. Kenneth Wynn, let's talk about uh, anarchy first. Uh, he's a professor at Washington University and author of a, an, a, just an outstanding book called Exiles in the Land of Liberty. He writes, quote, Anarchy reared its head when the rabble, generally men with no stake in society, fractured the body politic into unrestrained forces. Nobody in their right mind in early political America wanted to see the republic slip from a, uh, into a form of anarchy because in the throes of anarchy, unruly masses will often turn to visionary men and make them their rulers. And those visionary men often become despots. So anarchy was something that the nation ter terribly wanted to avoid. So political, social, and religious despots were viewed as enemies to a sound and thriving republic. This is one of the reasons Joseph Smith Jr. and early Mormonism was persecuted so much. They were viewed as an anarchistic, tyrannical type of force that kind of mirrored what was going on when uh, the British ruled their own military, this monar monarchy that they talked about. And so these themes scared and they terrified early Americans. Uh, and I'm sure the uniforms that Joseph wore and the swords he carried and the, and the white horse he rode around and the, and the militias he formed didn't help the situation either. A variety of social safeguards were used and promoted by early Americans as a means of protecting the public from the deleterious effects of anarchy and tyranny. These safeguards or these Republican themes, all right, many of which came from puritanical thought, um, were considered essential to controlling the chaos and decline of the unruly American masses. Interestingly enough, these very same themes find their way conveniently into the text of the Book of Mormon. Now, one of these themes is to fighting anarchy and tyranny was an agrarian approach to living. And all that means is being farmers, people, agrarian who had their hands in the soil, and that's how they made their living. This was key to trying to control anarchy and tyranny in America. Just as early Americans long extolled the farmer as the epitome of industriousness, independence, and civic virtue, so does the Book of Mormon. Turning to the book itself, we find that when the great Nephi prophet named Alma led people out of the uh, 
out from under the control of the poster child for tyranny, King Noah, the wicked King Noah, the Book of Mormon says that the people were freed, quote, and they pitched their tents and began to till the ground and begin to build buildings, yea, they were exceedingly industrious, yea, did labor exceedingly. Even when the savage, nomadic, anarchistic Lamanites converted to the Nephites' ways of agrestic industry, Joseph Smith writes that they too began to till the ground, raising all manner of grain and flocks and herds of every kind. This was the, the, the witness that the Lamanites, once savage, had now become peaceful. They became farmers, which was the American ideal. In other words, when the wild and ferocious Indians of the Book of Mormon turned, they became 19th century farmers. But simply being industrious was not enough in early America, and neither was it enough in the Book of Mormon. Traditionally, early American theorists feared that certain occupations, like sales merchants and lawyers, might not be totally committed to the Republican ideal because they played to people's desire for luxury and they lived off the troubles of others and of course they didn't have their hands in the fertile soil so Americans as a whole distrusted merchants and lawyers. As if he was forgetting he was translating from some plates from something, Joseph Smith's personal invective against attorneys seemed to slip into the text of the uh, Book of Mormon when he says that the sole ob object of lawyers was to get gain. That's a quote from the Book of Mormon. This was the commonplace idea in the Republic. The Smiths rarely had any good experience with lawyers or attorneys. The bias comes out loud and clear. To truly support the early American Republican ideal of civic respectability, one had to not just be industrious, but they had to literally work with their hands. In the Book of Mormon, these early American ideals were applied to the righteous Nephites who, whether a leader or a commoner, all tilled the earth themselves. In fact, one popular Nephite hero, the goodly King Benjamin, who spent his days uh, supposedly serving others, he embodies this early American ideal to a T. And supposedly he wrote in the Book of Mormon, quote, I myself have labored with my own hands that I might serve you, that you should not be laden with taxes, which was another major issue from coming out from under British rule. Joseph goes on to describe the King Benjamin's son, whose name is Messiah, in terms of the Republican ideal too. He, Messiah took over as king in the Book of Mormon, and he says, and he did cause his people to till the earth. And he also himself did till the earth, that thereby he might not be burdensome, burden, burdensome to his people, end quote. Even the religious leaders in the Book of Mormon, like Alma, fit the accepted Republican model of a good citizen when he tells his priests, hey, quote, not to depend on people for their support, but to labor with their own hands. Now, what we find in the Book of Mormon are good characters who embody all of early American ideals and evil characters who represent all early Americans found reprehensible and dangerous to the Republic. These characterizations are so blatant and wooden that it almost screams fiction throughout. They just represent American ideals. There's no personality to them at all. They're wooden and they are borrowed from the culture of the time. Every good Nephite or converted Lamanite was never destitute, but was instead self-reliant, 
industrious, a farmer who disdained self-seeking luxury, yet who at the same time was sensitive to the needs of the community uh, and who had a heart for people who really had needs. But then every bad Lamanite or fallen Nephite is pictured as the epitome of all the Republic feared, lazy, full of vice, avarice, tyrannical, and had anarchistic attitudes. I'm not saying these characteristics in the Book of Mormon are wrong. They're probably correct in how uh, to, to describe people who are dangerous and productive. But I am saying they certainly do not um, depict uh, a translation from an ancient record. Hand in hand with extolling the virtues of aggressive industrious, industriousness in the Book of Mormon uh, is the Republican safeguard against wealth and against its gluttonous stepsister, luxury. Early founding fathers did not want America to be wealthy and in living in luxury. Classical theorists in early America feared that the Republican virtues of simplicity, economy, and industry would amount to large fortunes and then ultimately to the uh, destructive idea of luxury. Luxury was an enemy to the Republic because anyone who had more than what they needed might be tempted to sell their political liberties in order to retain their personal luxurious standard of living. Republican ideals sincerely believed that whenever the public good took a backseat to private interests, the public was at risk. And luxury or any form of it was considered a true indicator that private desire was taking over public good and that the republic was headed for disaster. In typical prose supportive of republican ideals, Joseph Smith writes in the Book of Mormon, quote, And it came to pass in the eighth year of the reign of judges that the people of the church began to wax proud because of their exceeding riches and their fine silk, and their fine twined linen, and because of their many flocks and herds, and their gold, and their silver, and all manner of precious things, and they had obtained by, that they had obtained by their industry. And in all those things they were lifted up in pride of their eyes, for they began to wear costly apparel. In coming shows, we will explain how this verse and others like it reflect an open wound in Joseph Smith's heart because of his private life. Additionally, time won't permit a number of other things that are included in the Book of Mormon, things like Captain Moroni, who represents the early American ideal, uh, and other things like it. But we're going to open up the phone lines so the operators can start clearing the calls, and I want to finish up by talking about anarchy for a second. 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Okay. In September of 1826, before Joseph Smith is said to have obtained the plates, or in my opinion, while he was formulating the outline for the Book of Mormon, an event occurred which had national implications on Joseph Smith and gave him more grist for the mill in creating the Book of Mormonian. A man named William Morgan, who was a Mason, was kidnapped not too far from Joseph's home and was never seen again. Morgan was a Mason who had just completed an expose about the secrets of Freemasonry, and it was believed that the Masons got a hold of Morgan and killed him for his soon-to-be-released revelations. As a side note, William Morgan's widow, Lucinda Pendleton, became one of Joseph Smith's first polygamous wives. Over the next three years, while Joseph Smith was writing the Book of Mormon, the politically powerful but highly evasive Masonic movement which was widespread through early America, faced huge public outcry in the murder of Morgan. 
And most Americans saw uh, masonry as tyrannical at its core. And because of this, um, masonry fell apart and it's continued, it's never really recovered since this happened with Morgan back in Joseph Smith's day. Again, why the huge outcry? It was just one murder, one loss of life here in early America. The early Americans believed that secret societies endangered the Republic because secret oaths and loyalty to such groups would subversively replace the out in the open loyalty people should have for the Republic uh, that they were living in. In other words, secret societies promoted secret anarchy, uh, which would ultimately lead to tyranny, the two things they feared. Reading Jefferson's declaration, recall how many times he mentions the word tyrant or tyranny associated with King George. Since masonry was seen as a secret form of organized tyranny, it was nationally repudiated as a threat to the Republic. Like many other contemporary themes, as anti-Masonic fervor swept through the established nation, it also became a theme in Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon. Within the pages, Joseph gave the Masons, or groups like them, the names the Gadianton Robbers. And just listen to the Masonic inferences as we conclude with reading a passage from the supposed ancient set of plates. The setting is that some of the goodly Nephites have joined up with the Gadianton robbers. And in the narrative in the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith writes, And they did enter into their covenants and their oaths that they would protect and preserve one another in whatsoever difficult circumstances they should be placed in, that they should not suffer for their murders and their plunderings and their stealings. And it came to pass that they did have their signs, yea, their secret signs and their secret words. And this is that they might distinguish a brother who has entered into the covenant, that whatsoever wickedness his brother should do, he should not be injured by his brother, not by those who belong to his band who have taken this covenant that they might murder and plunder and steal and commit whoredoms and all manner of wickedness contrary to the laws of their country and all the laws of their God and whosoever of those who belong to their band should reveal unto the world of their wickedness and abomination should be tried not according to the laws of the country, but according to the laws of their wickedness. That describes with the signs, the secret words, Joseph Smith taking the outcry against masonry way, way back in before the Book of Mormon came out, 1827, and including the theme and calling those people the Gadianton robbers. As a warning to the nation, uh, uh, Joseph at that time in his life was uh, against masonry. The irony is that not too many distant years, uh, tired of the Book of Mormon, it seems, Joseph... Um, would actually embrace Freemasonry, become a Mason himself, and then actually infuse many secret Masonic forms and rites into the religion called Mormonism today. But we're gonna talk about that way down the road. All of these factors help form some of the dirt upon which Joseph Smith stood throughout his teen and young life and came into his mind as he compiled the Book of Mormon. Let's go to the phones. We have uh, Paul in Salt Lake City. And uh, he is uh, on line two. Paul, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, son. Uh, you mentioned uh, about testimony and how uh, the feelings, faith, and facts yeah. come into play. I, 
uh, feelings uh, really keep kept and still is keeping me in the church. Yeah. I no longer believe I'm a member of the church, but I'm not a believer. Huh. And uh, my feelings is not the feelings that I know the church is true because I know it isn't now. Uh-huh. Uh, the feelings of fear and letting down my family and a lot of other feelings that I've never ever dreamed I had to would place. And my question is, uh, how long does this process take before I can be happy about knowing the Bible in a simpler church of God and not of man? Paul, um, before the before you reach that spot, you got to take out what's in you and replace it with truth. Now, and you're probably doing that. It takes time. The Bible says it refers to the washing of the word. And so the best advice I can give you, my brother, is to open the Bible, not the King James, the LDS produced, but another Bible. If you need one, stay on the line. We'll send you one. And start reading in the book of John and just pray, Lord, open my eyes. And what happens is God has made it so that his word will come in and it starts clearing out all the garbage. Just like you go in the attic or the garage, it starts throwing all the junk you've collected all your life as a Latter-day Saint and it starts replacing it with truth. And pretty soon what happens is you become a committed person to Christ and what he did for you. That becomes so overwhelming that you are empowered to the point where you say, Mom, Dad, I'm gone. Employer, I'm over. Christ is everything. But it does, for many people, take time. The way it's going to occur is by your reading the Word, my brother. Okay. <laughs> On the he sounded convinced. Bible, it, it, the King James version of the Bible that I should have? Uh, King, J King James, you know, you can, you can really... You but know, not one written by the church that has like all the uh, things at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Paul, stay on the line. We're going to send you a Bible. We'll send you one that you can use that is just the King James. And if you're used to reading that, if you're not used to reading that, tell the operator and we'll send you one that's uh, easier to read. Okay, thank you, Sean, and Thank you for hopefully saving my life. <laughs> well, the Lord did that, but I'm grateful to just play any part I can, Paul. And God bless you, my brother. We'll be praying for you. Hold on, okay? Thanks. Okay. I'm pushing hold. Line two is waiting. We have Rich in Salt Lake City. Uh, he's a first-time caller. Off the air, it says, do you believe that Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon? Uh, We're going to get to that as we move along and give, give all the information we can about this Book of Mormon. So I'm not going to answer that on the air tonight. Rich from Salt Lake City, first time caller. Rich, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, hey, Sean. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. How are you? Great, great. I, I just kind of wanted to make a comment on the, the beginning when you were talking about image in the church. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, raised in the church and... Um, Till, you know, 16 or 17 years old, and one of the things that kind of took me out of it during that era was in the 70s, and there was a huge issue on the hair situation. Yeah. And part of the problem was, um, you know, I was a priest, I served the sacrament, but it got to the place 
uh, and my hair wasn't even that long, ironically, compared to today's standards. Um, but they wouldn't let me serve the sacrament. So then I had an issue. How is it that somebody's hair is over their collar and over their ears and they no longer can, you know, have a relationship with Christ? It's amazing. And I couldn't figure that out, you know. I just It just didn't mix. And then I don't know how long after. I mean, that was a heated thing in the 70s, obviously. But maybe a couple of months after, I wish I knew what the volume was. But the Ensign, you know, the magazine, yeah, came out with a picture of Christ on the cover with the most incredible haircut I've ever seen. I <laughs> <laughs> styled over the head, over the collar, <laughs> over the ears, and everything. Oh, it's sick! It was kind of reinforcing the imagery that that's how it was. Yeah, yeah. And um, that was my problem. I just says, well, you know. Uh, there's either a relationship or not, hair short or long. I don't have a problem with short or long. It's the fact that the relationship should exist regardless. Amen, my brother. Really appreciate the call, Rich. Thanks for your insights, my friend. Okay, well, thank you for your show and your efforts. Okay, God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. You know, here's the problem. God is concerned about the heart of a man and a woman. That is what he wants that's what he wants to have, and that's what he is going to look at when we're dead. Now, men, we look at the outward appearance, fine. But men in clergy ought to be able to say, at least the leaders, to say, we're trying to get people's hearts right. We don't care about the outside. It is so, it's this pernicious in this state. What goes on with these white shirts and this appearance gig that they put people in and they actually think that 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 is some that is some outward manifestation of holiness what's so ironic about that is they'll take these little deacons and they'll say you got to have your hair cut or you can't do this you can't do that but that little deacon do you know what that kid's thinking about during the week i mean do, do they before they administer the sacrament do they say hey what do, you know, do they give them a worthiness test in their mind and heart before they do it? No, they just want to make sure they're wearing the freaking uniform. It's ridiculous. And it also engenders this horrible situation, for instance, like at the Mormon dances. At the Mormon dances, I don't know if it's still this way, but when I went, you had to wear a shirt that had a collar, you had to wear a tie, and your hair had to be over the collar, and you couldn't be dressed, you know, or look out, outlandish. So what it did is put everybody wolves in sheep's clothing. It was great because it was the one time in the week I looked like a really good guy. So, yeah, the chicks did me, and I'm talking about, you know, I think I knew you in the pre-existence. You want to go outside and talk? You know? And, and, and everybody's, you know, doing all this. It's just a breeding ground for delusion. You know, why don't they let people come into the dance who have the hair and stuff, and then the stalwart members can say, I'm not dancing with that one, or I'm not doing But no. See, it's just crazy men's thoughts. All right. Question, has anyone ever found any metal plates in the Americas? From what I know, understand, no, never. Except for some sets called the Kinderhook plates. And we're going to talk about those, and they were a complete fraud, which tricked Joseph Smith. Absolutely look it up, utlm.org. Go to utlm.org, look up Kinderhook plates, read the history, and you can see what the man did with those. Okay, you know... We've long stated that humans hate uncertainty and disorder and messiness. Some just want everything to go their way. Uh, I would suggest this is not 
uh, of God. Listen, we got this email. I watched your show last night. No doubt you're probably getting a number of emails regarding the, quote, stain in Mormonism or other religions after being reborn. This author of this email wants everybody to understand that there's this process, and it's got to kind of go this way. She writes, I recall in your book, I Was a Born Again Mormon, that you stayed in your religion for four years until God led you out. I believe that the key here is that God did lead you out. Yes, that is the key. It was God who led me out, not someone else telling me I had to go. You get that? That's why we don't say that on the show. She continues, one who has been truly reborn and filled with the Holy uh, Spirit cannot be comfortable in a false religion. Really? That, really? You know, I, I went to a Christian church about two weeks ago with my wife and daughter, and uh, that religion is filled with a lot of people who are very good Christians who I know and love. And that pastor was off his rocker in the message that was being given. Does that mean everybody walks out of the church then too? I mean, churches are fallible. It is only Jesus who is truth with a capital T. So, you know, don't give me this thing. You're, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and you're going to go only to a church that teaches complete truth. It doesn't happen. Okay? So it's not happening in the Mormon sense. True, but they do teach some truths. But the whole point is God leads out. She continues to write, and they cannot bear to hear the abundance of blasphemies against the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a projection of your opinion, highly generalized, isn't it? I mean, is everything so boxed up that God can't work around things? Do you, do you really want me to say on this show, you all have to leave the church immediately. When you accept Jesus Christ, you leave immediately. That's expected of you. It's the only way. Now, come on. God is in charge. Trust in that. Let him gently lead. What if a man becomes uh, 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 convicted by the Holy Spirit and is born again and his wife is completely LDS? Is he to just run from her? I mean, they are unequally yoked, aren't they? Should the marriage dissolve at that point? Should he turn from his children because they're little Mormonites too? I mean, come on. When are we going to get some sense here? And let's use love and the faith that Christ gives us to be him to people in these situations. The Holy Spirit reject, uh, directs the individual to discard all false teachings and disassociate themselves with false religion. Hmm. And how long does this take? You know, how long does it take for the Holy Spirit to clean out all the false teachings? We just had a call from a guy. He was just like, hey, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I mean, and you, yeah, you read the word and you let the Holy Spirit work on you and it opens your eyes gently and slowly. The Holy Spirit is, is a gentleman. It doesn't rip you out, you know. Why someone leaves Mormonism is probably as important or more important than if they leave Mormonism, you know. And if they leave because the Lord has said, this is, no, this is not my truth, boy, what a powerful person that is going to be when they step out. But if they leave because they read something that says, Joseph Smith had a bunch of wives, I'm leaving. Where do they go? Let's have a heart here, you know? Let's give God some, a chance to work with people. And Sean, here's the key to all this, she writes. I believe that once a person truly, here we go again, truly has an understanding of who Jesus is, what his gospel really is, she misdefines the gospel, that Christ truly lives and that one must be born again, they will run, run out of the false religion, not walk. So, man, uh, you want to be so, cure, so secure in your beliefs that you want to dictate the, the rapidness of the foot of the person now leaving the building. They have to run now to be approved that they really are truly born again. 
Do you see where all the insanity leads in this stuff? Don't buy into it, you guys. Uh, you, everyone who is LDS in this state, if you're watching this show, take your heart, your troubles, your sin, your lack of faith or your abundance of faith. You take it to God directly. Jesus, I don't know that I'm born again. Will you please give me new life? Forgive me of my sins. Help me to see that you are there in my life and I am forgiven past, present, and future and saved. And he will do it. And if you're still in the LDS church, who cares? If you're still in the Catholic church, who cares? If you're still a Pentecostal frothing around doing stuff, who cares? If you're still in a place biting heads off snakes, who cares? Because in time, God will lead you to the place he wants you. And don't let anybody else tell you otherwise. All right. Linda writes, Sean, I have a question. My husband's bishop bought him the Mormon magic underwear. And in fact, it was this that bought me to Christ, that brought me to Christ. Isn't that funny how God works, huh? The bishop thinks he's doing something, and this very thing is what brought this woman to Christ. Although uh, he hasn't begun to wear them, I think he will soon. My question is this. How on earth can I get past the absolute repulsion of those things? I've been praying endlessly for the uh, grace of God to handle this, but I have anxiety whenever I think about it. He and I have an incredible love life. That's too much information. Please don't include these things. And the thought of him wearing those things just gags me. Any advice from Linda? Yes. I suggest, Linda, that uh, you put on some clown makeup, you put on some lingerie from 1890, and uh, you tell your husband this is part of your new religion. And uh, it will open up a dialogue where you can say, listen, we're husband and wife. These things are not part of our relationship. So if you're going to wear them, wear them when I'm not around. Wear them when I'm not in the picture. Wear them when we're not uh, sleeping. If you're going to choose those things, wearing those things over me, you know, then I'm going to start wearing my, my uniform too. And we'll see how that goes. I'm, of course, I'm partially tongue-in-cheek, but it's the premise that you're discussing. So that I can get out in the open and have a dialogue about it. Okay, uh, we have Mike in Salt Lake City. Hold on, I got to get to this email. This was sent in to us by Gladiator. He says, I thought you'd get a kick out of this. This is an ad that was in the newspaper here in Salt Lake. And it was uh, announcing a tour guide, Dr. Jerry Lyman Red, who is uh, going to do tours for $2,000. And they're calling the Book of Mormon tour to Central America. Ooh. And then 13, 13 days of this tour are detailed in the ad, and he actually tells you what you're going to do, and listen to what the guy says. We're going to arrive in Guatemala City. We're going to go to Camanelujel, and uh, at this site, we find over 200 temple mounds, 2 Nephi 516, evidence of several groups of our lineage, Jacob 1-3, and literacy among the elite, Mosiah 2-4. So he gives a description of the area, and he gives Book of Mormon references as if that is what is going to be visited by these people over these 13 days. On the second day, you got to hear this. In this memorable meeting with the humble saints of this area and beautiful children, we will feel the same spirit, unity, and love that pervaded earlier meetings described in the Book of Mormon. And he says, we're going to go to this breathtaking place called Lake uh, uh, Aditlan, considered by some to be the most beautiful lake in the world and believed by many to be the waters of Mormon. This lake is fed by springs of pure water, Messiah 23.4, and is very beautiful, Messiah 18.30. 
And so the guy, he is leading tours of Book of Mormon lands that have absolutely no verification at all that they are what they say they are. It's pure fiction. The only thing that's not fiction about that is uh, the $2,000 you're going to pay to go out and look at these places all couched in the Book of Mormon. We're going to go to Mike in Salt Lake City on line three. Mike, you're on heart of the matter. How are you doing? I, was, I just wanted to comment about what you were talking about at the first of the show about the facade and how people, you know, are judging you because of the way you look. You know, look at John. Look at John. You know, he, he had long hair, wore animal skins, ate locusts and wild honey, you know, which, you know. Well, I love John the Baptist. That wouldn't be very acceptable. And he prepared the way for God, uh, for the Lord when he came. You know, uh, the, I don't see where any of the disciples or the followers of Jesus Christ had money. Some of them couldn't read, talk, you know, they, they didn't uh, have any... When they followed Jesus around himself, you know, uh, performed miracles to feed people because he didn't have the monetary system to do it, you know. And this thing, it's not behavioral modification, it's heart transformation. You can change the facade, but unless the heart's changed, unless you have a relationship with God, you can't, uh, uh, you, you, you can't progress. Yeah. And it, it's, not, it's not that. God said he would take... The, uh, the things that they say not, and I will make them yea. I didn't call the noble, the prudent, and the wise, because no flesh is going to glory in front of him. Amen. But when he takes us, like me and you, you know, and the world looks at us and says, hey, it couldn't be, you know, God works through us and says, it couldn't have been that man, because he doesn't have anything and he doesn't know anything. Right. And it really glorifies God, because that's what God uses, and that's what he wants. He wants the base things, so that he, can, he will receive all the glory which we were made for, his glory. That's right. And I believe straight up, it, it's not behavioral modification. You can, you can uh, put a, a gold ring in a pig's ear, a pig's nose, it's still a pig. Mm -hmm. You know, it, <laughs> that doesn't, it's what God works within us. Amen. And not behavioral modification, but heart transformation. Yeah, and what you are doing, and I've seen you on the streets. I mean, I've been on the streets, and I've witnessed the people over at Pioneer Park, and certain areas of this town that nobody goes. And the thing is, is that the, the, you, God can use you in this way because it, when they see you, they look at you and they see the love of God in you. Amen. That opens that door for you to witness and talk to him, and that's why you're successful. When you first started years ago and you were down at the, the station, I knew some people down there that we both know, and some people came and prayed for you, and I heard about what you were doing, and I thought it was a wonderful thing. And I know that God has blessed you, he's anointed you, and he has the Holy Spirit in you, and you are going to be successful, and you have been successful. That's why so many things have come against you and your family. That's why they've lied against you. That's why they did all the things they did to God's men. You are a man of God, and these people know it, and you are bringing down these strongholds, and you are speaking the truth, and I am so proud of you. Oh, thanks, Mike. Thank you so much. God bless you, my brother. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. You know, Mike quoted a passage, and listen to this carefully, because if this describes you, go to the Lord. It says, but God has chosen the foolish things. That's why, you know, I'm a donkey. Anybody knows. The foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world. The guys who gain a lot of weight. 
the guys who like to drink a little too much, the, the women who kind of get angry sometimes or too jealous, the weak things of the world, to confound the things that are mighty, the educated and the well-dressed and the wealthy and the affluent and the people who make money their God and, and all the other things, the outside appearances. And this is what Mike said, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised has God chosen, yea, the things which are not. That means that you don't have anything going on. Uh, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh, no flesh, my friends, should glory in his presence. All around this state, you've witnessed it, we've seen flesh glorying in his presence. We see it in the attitudes, we see it in the, in the stance, we see it in the sing-song deliverance from the, these multi, uh, this multi-million dollar conference centers and the, and the, and the presence and the appearance. And yet God chooses the base, weak uh, things of the world to confound the wise because no flesh can, uh, can uh, glory in his presence. So we praise God and we thank God publicly for anybody whose heart says Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my king. I give him my life. And like he said, it's not behavioral modification. Because our behaviors, like I said, the military or whatever group can get you to really perform, put a pig, a gold earring in a pig's ear, but it's still a pig. It's got to be the heart that changes. It's got to be a human, it's got to be a godly heart put in that pig that changes it, okay? So remember that. Don't beat yourself up over your weaknesses. Turn to the Lord and King and trust in Him. We're going to continue on discussing the Book of Mormon. We're going to talk about the seeds of Joseph Smith's family and uh, how those affected him. We're going to talk about the early magic practices and how those came into the Book of Mormon. Very big. The Angel Moroni visits, the translation process, the lost 116 pages, the witnesses of the plates, and the Book of Mormonian itself. We're going to dissect that thing, and you're going to see, compared to the Bible, it's nothing but an onion. We'll talk to you next week here on Heart of the Matter.